Hey, welcome to Four Points. My name is Pastor Russ. If it's your first time, welcome. We're honored that you've taken some time out of your weekend and summer to experience Summer Inside. That's what we call second service. It's called Summer Inside. The AC is working. About as good as that window unit in your grandmama's house back in the day. But it's working. Hey, we're, we're excited that you're here with us right now. Um, we're starting a brand new series, Good Day to Be Here. It's called Momentum Killers. A lot of times we look at books of the Bible. We're looking at a theme in a series because there's this ugly rumor uh, that's going around. I, I know none of you are a part of it, but apparently during the summer, people take a lot of weekend trips. I, I, I know none of you have done it, but I hear culturally some of you go to revisit the site of where you broke all those commandments in a place called Cherry Grove over the summer so that you can remind yourself that the blood of Jesus was sufficient for you to make payment for all those senior week sins. <laughs> all those bike week sins that you committed down there at the beach. Uh, but what we wanted to do was have a good, effective, fun series over the summer that would look at the ways that you and I see the momentum in our relationship with God come to a screeching halt and give you some encouragement, advice, and wisdom from the Word of God by the Spirit of God on how to keep the momentum in your relationship with God going. So we're going to be looking at subtle and secret sins that have a dangerous and deadly effect on our ongoing relationship and walk with the Lord and the community of God that He's called us to be a part of over the summer. If you miss one, that's why we have YouTube. If you're on vacation, that's great. Make a memory. Have some fun. If you're having eight vacations, you're being greedy. And if we don't see you until August, it's because you were greedy, not because the Word wasn't good and God wasn't at work in the church. Amen? Uh, so uh, we're going to be all over the Bible today. If you want to try and keep up with me, you can scan the QR code in front of you. There is a sermon guide, and it literally gives you my notes so you know whenever I am drifting from the topic and whenever I'm staying on the topic. It also gives you an ETA on when you're going to get lunch. These are pros for scanning the QR code and uh, keeping that bulletin guide in front of you. Uh, I do love basketball. I know I don't look the part anymore. I have settled into a healthy dad bod. Uh, but back, back in the day, uh, I was a baller, a shot caller. Uh, I wanted to have 20-inch rims on the... Imp anyway, uh, that, that's, that's not a sanctified memory. That's not from the Lord. Um, but, but I, I was a, a decent ball player, and I loved, uh, back in the day, the Charlotte Hornets with Grandma Ma, Larry Johnson, and Alonzo Mourning, and Muggsy Bogues, who gave all short people hope that we could make the NBA, amen? Like, anybody else, I, like, you're like, you're not short. Look, 6'2 in the NBA is short. Like, there's no, like, people are tall. Muggsy was like 5'5", five, five, and he could, like, yoke the ball. It was amazing. So, I've lived away for 13 years in a far-off land. Well, we have suffered under what's known as the Kobe Bryant curse. Many of you aren't aware of this. Let me bring you up to speed quickly. The Charlotte Hornets drafted Kobe Bryant and traded him for a pack-a-day smoking Serbian named Vladi Divac. The reason we do not hang championship banners in Charlotte is because we are under, like Boston was, a curse. I'm convinced of it. I know somebody like, I don't believe in curses, and Jesus broke. Like, I'm just telling you, when you trade Kobe Bryant away for a near-retired, can't-walk-up-and-down-the-court Serbian named Vladi Divac, the future's not going to be bright, okay? And, and so I went to my first Hornets game in 13 years, praying that the Lord would break this evil curse over us, and we got beat like a tied-up goat for three-and-a-half quarters. It was ugly. We were losing by 24, 25, up to 30 points at one point in time, and I paid money for this. I'm an empathizer. 
When you suffer, I eat. That's the way that I empathize. And so I was buying $14 nachos and putting my family into debt, grief-eating my way through the basketball game. (laughs) Until, until midway through the fourth quarter, I don't know if they drank crunk juice. I don't know if someone gave them an IV. I don't know if there was a, a motivational speech. I don't know if Rudy came out of the crowd and, and just get, like, was like, you can do it. I, I, water boy showed up. Something happened. Because what we couldn't do for three and a half quarters changed. And under five minutes to go in the game, it was a three or four point game. And we had a ball game on our hands. We still lost. But my point is, on a dime, the momentum shifted. And spiritually speaking, I think a lot of you can relate to similar experiences, where everything, perhaps, was going good. Your relationship with God was gaining momentum. You could sense the presence of God. When you prayed, you felt like God heard and answered the prayers that you were praying. And then something happened. A a bad week, a bad season, a bad decision, a bad destination showed up, and you lived there, and it seemed like all of the spiritual momentum you had in your relationship with God was gone in a moment. Have you been there? Have you experienced it? Well, That's because following Jesus on this side of eternity is not easy. It's not easy. And we think it should be. But living a godly life goes against the current of culture, and it's not easy to live. So whenever you walk in the path of long-observed obedience after Jesus, what you will find often is not a current that puts wind in the cells, but something that works against the wind in the cells. It's swimming upstream with everyone swimming downstream trying to knock you down with them. And so it's hard to keep the momentum in your relationship with God on this side of eternity. Now that doesn't mean that you can quit or give up. It doesn't mean that you can give an excuse for the lack of momentum that you have in your relationship with God that's going on right now. But it does mean that we can all acknowledge and accept the fact that when, you, when it comes to following Jesus, you will have trouble and tribulation. And Jesus promised it. We just finished up another baseball season in the Chambers household. My son played All-Stars last weekend in an All-Star tournament. We had a game on Friday night, two games on Saturday, and one immediately following service last Sunday. So I ran out the door because I'm the pitcher for the coaches' pitch team and ran. Now, here's what's amazing over that four-game, three-day tournament. My son frequently was shocked at things going wrong in the game. Friday night. One of his teammates drops the ball, and I heard my son go, what are you doing? And I'm like, he's eight, son. He's eight. That's what he's doing. He's eight, and that glove was bought at Kmart, and Kmart ain't ain't around no more, okay? So, like, (laughs) mistakes are going to be made. He would get up to bat, and I think he, in his mind, expected that he was going to be like the great Bambino, and every time he got up to hit, he was going to get a home run. So he was shocked when he would end up at first, or worse, get out. And he would get so mad about it. So finally... I never will forget this. Uh, last weekend, he hit a ball, I mean, on the screws, like crushed it. It was in the gap. It was beautiful. I had thrown the pitch. As a father, I was having a moment of pride of like, that's my son. We're going to go to the major leagues. I'm going to actually retire one day. Like, like it was a, an amazing moment. And somewhere in center field, this kid that was clearly taking HGH or human growth hormone <laughs> ran the fly ball down and dove and caught it. And my son, with tears in his eyes, running first, is like, I'm going to kill that kid. And I was like, it's time to have a talk. And I grabbed him by the shoulders and I said, son, bad things are going to happen in every game you play. You no longer have permission from this point forward to be surprised when bad things happen. 
Instead, it's your job to respond differently when bad things happen. The momentum's going to shift. It's going to change. Now, I said that to him, and in great Holy Spirit fashion, I felt the Holy Spirit convict me and say, so let's talk about that. <laughs> you ever have a moment where you teach your kids a good point? You're like, I nailed it as a parent, and your Heavenly Father's like, speaking of parent. <laughs> Can we have a chat around this? You see, Matthew chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus said, in this life you will have... So when the momentum goes wrong, you do not have permission to be surprised. God warns you. God promised that this, this path of obedience going after Jesus would be met with opposition and difficulty. On this side of eternity, you sow good seed and sometimes don't get the reward or the harvest that you expected to get. There are going to be times where you're walking and doing the right thing, but you get difficulty instead of ease that comes in your life. There are going to be times where you're going to receive a blessing, and that blessing is going to bring complexity, and that complexity is going to bring pain in your life. And you thought it was going to make it easier. You were going to be on easy street. But the Bible warns us that in this life you will have trouble, tribulation, trial, difficulty, but fear not because the one you follow has what? Overcome the world. So you're not allowed to be surprised by trouble. You're not allowed to be overcome by trouble because Jesus overcame the trouble and he wanted you to know that trouble would come. So he warned you about the trouble and gave you his victory so that you could watch it in reverse. How many of you have ever watched a football game after the game was decided? It's different, isn't it? Is it not a little different when you know Clemson's already won? Praise God. Like, like Gamecock fans can relate. Is it not a little different when you are like already aware of the fact that a miracle has happened and you've won? Like, you watch the game differently. You sit back. Bad things happen. It doesn't always go your way. You punt the ball. You don't wring your hands out. You already know what's on the other side of the punt. The game's going to end, and victory's going to happen for the good guys. Well, that's why we got Genesis and Revelation. He's alpha and in the ending. And so, so here, here's what I want to say to you, spiritually speaking. You do not have permission to be surprised when things get difficult. But you are responsible for how you respond in the path of that difficulty. And that's what this series is about. It's about you and I understanding that we have simple responses to difficulty that God promised us that we would have. And it's not excusable for us to allow that to rob us of the momentum and hope that Jesus has for us in his victory that he's already given us even though the game is still being played. So with that, let me talk to you about the most subtle of sins that probably for a lot of you is the root of a lot of your problems. It's called greed. It's a supervillain. It's a momentum killer. And it undercuts you being content and satisfied in the Lord. And the reason most of you aren't like, ooh, yeah, is because none of you think you're greedy. You've been comparing yourself to Scrooge McDuck, which is the wrong person to compare yourself to. Greed is a subtle and sneaky sin in all of our lives. And so I want to do some history to see how prevalent and aware people who follow Jesus are of this under-the-surface sin called greed. So I looked up in all of the church history annuals. You're welcome. Any occurrences of church discipline happening for someone who was in the sin of greed? There's one case in all of American church history I could find. One. One case of someone who was disciplined 
for greed in the church. Let me explain it to you. His name was Robert Crane. It was 1635, and he lived in Boston, Massachusetts. He was a part of the first congregational church in Boston, Mass. Now, the church understood that in America there was opportunity that they were going to have, and they didn't want to fall into the subtle sin of greed. So as a community, they got together and decided that in their doing of business, they were only going to work at a 4% profit. Any of you out there thinking about what it would be like to operate off that kind of detail? Yeah, this is before union. This is before taxes at the rate that we're at now. But they were going to operate a 4% profit. Now, the point is not that that's the standard. The point is they understood as a community that if they weren't careful, they could get greedy and not know it. So they were preemptive to set a standard and an accountability line for each other on how not to cross the line into the life of greed, which would rob them of being desperate for Jesus and content in Jesus and trusting in Jesus. Now, Robert decided that 4% wasn't enough, and he began to operate at a 6% profit, not thinking anyone would find out, except people did. And when they did, the church disciplined him for the sin of greed. Here's my question to you. Who other than you has the right to look under the surface in your life and determine whether or not what you're doing is greedy or not. I've learned something about me. You ready? I don't trust me. You've been told in this world you should trust yourself. That's terrible. I mean, think about all the stuff in your house that came from you trusting your gut. That collects dust that you're still paying credit card debt on. And you ain't touched in months, years, decades. And it's still there. And the 20% interest rate is still taking it out of your today resource because you had to have it because you went with your gut trusting yourself back then. I just want to submit to you, I think trusting yourself is a dumb idea. So I, I think it's strategic, wise of us to find other people who love Jesus, the church, and us in that order who will from time to time be given a position in our life to look and when something smells funny, say something so I don't stink. So I'm asking, I, I know a lot of you got accountability to not lie and gossip and do all kinds of other stuff, but I'm asking, who is it in your life that helps ensure that you don't fall into the subtle sin of greed? Now, while you're thinking about that great question, let me tell you why greed is so bad. Three reasons the Bible teaches us about why greed is bad. Number one, Greed brings ruin. Greed brings ruin. How many of you woke up today and said, today I want to wreck my life? Anybody? Like, like today, I just want it to just completely crash and burn. None of us do it. How many of you have found your life wrecked, though? By decisions you made that were leading to a path and a destination that you didn't think they were going to go. Let me, let me make sure you understand this. Every decision you make is a path. That decision compounds into other decisions that lead you to a destination. If you don't like your destinations, you should start paying attention to the path. If you don't like the path, you should start paying attention to the beginning. Does this make sense? Notice what Proverbs teaches. Greed brings grief to the whole family. But those who hate bribes will live. What what does greed do? When you greed something, it means you've uh, taken it, a good thing, and you've put it in a not good place when it comes to your affection, your focus, and your energy. So you've taken a good thing, I want community. And it's now become a means for you to be worshipped instead of for you to be healthy. It's now become a requirement 
and an essential need instead of it being something that you trust God as the only thing you need. And as a result of it, you elevate a good thing into an idol's position to fill shoes that it cannot fill. And then, here's what the text says, you begin to sell things that should never be sold so that you can have what you are greedy for. Greed brings grief to the whole family. Why? Because you begin to sell your time. You begin to sell your energy. You begin to sell your affection to the thing that you're greedy for to get what you think you need. And who's on the sacrifice block? Your legacy. Your family. But those who hate bribes can't be bought. I know who I am. I know what I'm here for. And I know what I've come to do. And it's not to get people-pleasing going on. It's not to get stuff or to die with lots of stuff. It's so that God will be honored, God will be glorified, and God will be seen in my life. That's why I'm here, and that's what I'm here for. If you're a Christian, I just summarized in a brief way what the Christian life looks like. If that's you, then, then what you end up getting is when this tempter comes and he offers, hey, you can make more money. Money's not the bottom line because greed doesn't have your heart. But if money's the bottom line, then you'll say, well, we can't go to church and I, I, I can't be around the family as much, and I can't make those events for the kids because, you know, they're going to grow up really quick because what I'm greedy for has my heart. You get where I'm going with this? It, it brings ruin. It's how we get songs like Cats in the Cradle. Familiar? When you coming home, son, I don't know when, but we'll get together then. Dad. I, I, I heard it. It's almost a comical joke, and it's a reality that's built on the back of greed. Greed brings ruin, number one. Number two, greed creates conflict. Greed creates conflict. Greed causes, this is what it says in uh, Proverbs chapter 28, verse 25, greed causes fighting. Trusting the Lord leads to prosperity. So what, what, is, what do you have to replace greed with? The answer is contentment. Contentment in what? The Lord. When you're greedy, what, what are you not? Content in the Lord. So if you're in greed, you, you have turmoil, you have anxiety and worry at a non-medical chemical level that's going on in your life that is derived from the greed that's within your heart and what you have or don't have and worrying over how you will or will not get it. So you stay up at night running around on a tape that's continuing to try and figure out how you can get what you don't have instead of being satisfied and resting in the Lord. Trusting the Lord leads to prosperity. You want to be fruitful, you want to be effective, you want to be impactful. The only way to do that is in life-giving relationship with your Savior and Creator. And when you're disconnected and not content and not trusting in Him as your provider, the only other option is to put it all on you and wear yourself down, which then creates conflict because you begin to close your fist to keep what you have, deny your neighbor for what he's given you to bless them with, and as a result of it creates tension and dissension within the family. I mean, think about how many families died with an inheritance that they then split and divided over. Think about how many arguments happen in marriage because of greed. Where one, one spouse is feeling like they're doing all the work while the other spouse maybe recognizes it but just ignores it. And let's just get honest. I mean, like, let's just be really honest. I'm the chief of the greedy of sin offenders here. Like, I, I, I'm just going to be honest. I, I've, I've heard my wife upstairs struggling with my kids, and I've acted like I've not heard it. You know why? I'm greedy. I've heard my kids come in the room in the middle of the night, but I've not woken up. You know why? I'm greedy. I've heard my wife the next morning complain of not having enough sleep, and I've been like, oh, how? You know why? I'm greedy. 
And then I wonder why we have fights or disagreements or tension within the family. And it all comes because of all the opportunities I could have been a servant, but instead I was selfish. So you get two greedy people together in a marriage and it goes really wrong really quick. But if you get two servant-minded people in a marriage, it can go really right really quick. The momentum can change like that. See, many of you right now, you're coming into this house today complaining to God about what you don't have, complaining about to, your, to God about your spouse, about what they've not given. And what is at the root of that is not what they have or have not done. What's at the root of that is that you're a selfish lover and a selfish person. When you've been called to be a servant lover and a servant person. Mark 10, 48, Jesus said, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so you have quarrels and fighting going on, and the reason they're there is because you're selfish, and you're diagnosing it as it's them when it's actually you. It's greed, subtly under the surface, robbing you of satisfaction and contentment in the Lord, which would then call you from that contentment in Christ to serve others. But because you're not satisfied in Him, you're in need of others to serve you and to give you what you don't have. Greed creates conflict. Greed brings ruin. And number three, greed destroys community. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 4, a just king, I love that kings are brought into this, they're in positions of authority, gives stability to his nation. But one who demands bribes from a heart of greed destroys it. Why? Because they build walls and separate themselves from their people. They close their hands around the gifts they've been given, the authority they've been given, and they deny others the blessing of God, blessing them to be a blessing to the nations, which is one of the oldest calls of the Old Testament for us as the people of God. That your blessing would not be about your elevation, but it would be about others being blessed to know the God of the entire nation through his blessing on your shoulders, in your hands. So, so here's my question. When God puts it in your hand, is it going to be consumed and eaten up by you like a locust? Or is it going to be something that's stewarded and becoming a blessing and a fragrant aroma to the neighborhood because he's given it to you? Are you a faithful steward or are you a selfish steward? And some of you are like, oh, here we go with the church stuff. I, I've not talked about church. I'm talking about to your neighbor. The church hasn't even cried out against your selfishness yet. Some of y'all are going to spend more money on toilet paper than you're going to invest in God's kingdom and through the church this year, and that's a shame. But we're not even talking about that. We're talking about your own neighbors who know nothing of your faith, know nothing of your walk, and have never been impacted by the fact that you have a faithful God that's blessed you richly. That's a problem. It's rooted in the deceptive sin of greed. It destroys community. Instead of you breaking bread, you, you, you lock up the bread. Instead of you sharing the table, you have an empty table. And all of it comes from a greedy heart that doesn't allow for community to happen because, you know, if we get around those people, they might need something. So I want you to transfer that now to your relationship with God. Have you ever been in God's presence and not in need? I'm waiting. Have you ever been in God's presence and not in need? Some are like, yeah, I'm, I'm there all the time. I'm not needy. Okay, I'm, I'm not talking about arrogant and sinful. I, have you ever been in God's presence and not in need? The answer is you're always in need. Has God ever denied his presence to you because you're needy? Then what's the church doing? And what are we doing? See, see, greed robs us of community. Now, let me give you a definition, because some of you are like, I, this is new, I've not heard it, I don't like this, it seems weird. We need to work on big issues. This is the big issue. It's called the root issue. The fruit on, on the vine of sin 
usually is rooted in this thing called greed, a dissatisfaction in and a distrust in the Lord. So let me give you a definition of greed. It comes out of James chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. That way it's not an opinion. Look at what he says. What is causing quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? That's below the surface. You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet, you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. How many of you, let's just be honest in the house, how many of you know you're greedy, you know you have a greedy desire, so you've not even bothered to bring it in prayer to God? I'm just going to be honest. There's a lot of times where I'm like, man, floor seats at the Lakers. That'd be cool, but I'm not praying about it. You know why? Because I know what it is. It's carnal greed. It's it's a need for me to have status, position, power, attention that's all rooted below the surface and when seen on the surface, it looks like me exhausted and worn out and sacrificing relationships and people and peace so that I can have what's really going on within my heart, which is this greed that wants more. So I don't even go to God for it. And then look at what it goes on to say in the text. And even when you ask, you don't get it. Not because God isn't good and not because God doesn't have it, because your motives are all wrong. You want only what gives you. You were created to live life in everything and steward in a way that would give God praise, but a lot of you, the only thing you do is you steward what you have for the pleasure of yourself. So you take the blessing of God to build your platform so that everyone follows you and worships you. And for a lot of us, we could think greed is just what we do with money. No, no, greed is what social media lives on. Think about all the time and the attention and the sacrifices some of you have made for the likes and clicks and follows of other people, all because of greed, so that you could have pleasure and more satisfaction in your identity and who you think you are. And it all comes from wanting to be worship instead of give worship. It all comes from you wanting to experience immediate pleasure for yourself without wanting to give praise to God, who is what you really need in your life. You want it only because it gives you pleasure. You adulterous. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? The world's rooted in greed. We applaud greed. We never take days off because we're greedy. When the Bible says there's clearly to be a day where you abstain and you rest in the fact that I am God and you are not. You rest in the fact that you can labor all you want, but you labor in vain unless the Lord blesses the work of your hands. This is all biblically lined up, but the world goes, no, 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 no days off. We hustle. No, because we're greedy. We're greedy. We don't want to be made by God. We want to make something of ourselves and get it approved by God, and there's a big difference. So instead of submitting to his work, instead of submitting to his leadership, instead of submitting to him elevating or diminishing our platform, we then try and build our platform with his supply, and then we wonder why we're miserable, why we're worried, why we can't sleep, why we're running ourselves ragged. It's all because at the heart there's this greed that comes from a love of the world that works within the system of the world that doesn't understand the kingdom of God and what we've been called to be, which is the people of God, which means we're desperate for God, we walk in the leadership of God, we're filled with the spirit of God, and we're supplied by God for his work. Simply put, when it's God's will, it's God's bill, but when it's your will, it's your bill, and a lot of you have been paying a lot of bills lately that aren't God's. What's greed? This discontentment in trusting God. Uh, Justin Lonis, president of Covenant Theological Seminary, said, 
based on this text, greed is this. Greed is an internal sin. It's a species of covetousness or longing that, uh, for, for that which you haven't been given. It's less visible as moments of active sin. And that's the problem with it. Because I've been preaching for 30 good minutes here, walking through the scriptures, and you're like, yeah, greed's not me. This, this sermon is for them. I'm glad they're here to hear it. This is you. You're like, oh, I got active sin. No, that active sin is coming from a root that's rooted in a place called greed and discontentment from God. That's what's dangerous about it. So it's less visible as moments of active sin and more evident in its long-term, some of you this is going to resonate more than it should, its long-term corrosion of our souls. Why is it every January you start realizing, man, we got more than we need? Like, like, why are we on this cycle of consumerism that continues to tell us that there's a Savior that can be bought, that continues to run out of battery power, and we fall for the same thing again? It's the deceptiveness of greed. It's also a sin of faithlessness. Greed is the opposite of trust in God's provision. A grasping for security in stuff instead of resting in Him. That's why you should take greed seriously. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 says, The love of money is the... Now, most of us have edited the mess out of this verse. So we think this is what's evil. So then the pendulum swings to where we're like, Money's not evil. Money's neutral. So I want lots of it. And that's the problem. We get the extremes. Money is evil or money is God. Instead of money is a means to worship God, which is the midpoint. Money is not evil. Money is not God. Money is a means to worship God. That is the whole point of it. Everything in your life, God rightly looks at and says, mine. We then begin to evaluate what we're actually going to give him and what we're going to close our fist around thinking that we can hold it. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith, sounds like late night Christian TV, and pierced themselves with what? Many sorrows. But they got the anointing water from Jerusalem. But they got a bigger house where their kids are isolated in one part and they're in another part. A thousand square feet for some of you would be a blessing, not a curse. <laughs> Just trying to let this resonate with some of you. It's a revelatory moment. You've got lots of surface problems, but under the surface, this may be one of the greatest problems many of you have. Craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. They thought they were getting a blessing, and all they found out was grief. Michael Rhodes, who's a guy that wrote a book called Practicing the King's Economy, said, if the biblical authors thought a peasant's love of money could drag them to hell, what would that say to us? 1 Timothy was written to the church of Ephesus. Ephesus was filled with poor people, not rich people. And Paul's under the leadership of the Spirit. It's like they need to know that the love of money is going to have this terrible effect on them, and they didn't have much to manage. 
don't raise your hand, but if you make more than a few thousand dollars a year, you're in the top 5% of wage earners in the entire world. Now, I understand that you feel culturally poor in comparison to your neighbor and the Joneses and everybody else that you keep trying to keep up with. And just because they make BMWs here don't mean you've got to drive a BMW here. <laughs> Felt cute. Might delete later. I mean, think about this. Jesus, is 16% of everything he taught about was around money and its effect on your heart. It's magnet pull on your heart. I mean, if he's spending that much time on it, I mean, we should consider the fact that he said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I mean, you're like, well, I'm not rich. By comparison, top five percentile, I would say that's rich. That's rich. The point's not to get your money. The, part, the point is for you to recognize the stewardship or lack thereof of your money. Are you stewarding it or is it stewarding you? Oh, that, that's real, some, some of y'all like, he's, all right, you're, you wrap it up. Okay, I got 224 on the clock. I'm going to wrap it up. <laughs> but let me be very clear. The problem a lot of you have is what you thought would give you blessings and be something that would be a blessing to you became something that became a Lord over you, and his name ain't Jesus. It's the dollar bill. It's more. It's an appearance. It's a position. It's a destination that when you arrive to will not be fulfilling and then you'll need another destination that will, in your mind, take you higher and give you what you don't have and so you never find satisfaction. And then you write songs about not being able to get satisfaction and have to tour on it until you're away into your 70s and 80s walking around on bad feet and bad legs like an old man with everybody paying money to see you because you've never found satisfaction in sex, drugs, and rock and roll because it couldn't deliver what the real Lord can. I don't, want, I don't want this path. I don't want its destination for any of you in your life. So we've got to check our greed. Check your greed. That's the remedy. How do you check your greed? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 9 and 14, it says this. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So usually, I'm just going to go it out on a limb here. When we get to the application part of our sermon, we begin to look at a person named Jesus. He's a really good person. We're kind of like over the top in love with him here. He's big deal. Um, so here's the idea. If you want to know what it looks like not to be greedy, we should start with someone who's generous. His name is Jesus. How's he been generous? Because some of you are cynical. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that by his poverty he could make you. Okay. All right. We're scared about this application, aren't we? makes Americans really nervous. Other countries, not so nervous about this, but Americans, we get really uptight. Like, what does that mean? Does this mean we can't have the boat and the trailer? And the, No, 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 I ain't going into the stuff. I, that's the spirit's business, not mine. Let me, let me be clear. Jesus, in his example, gave up the riches of heaven so that he could give you the riches of heaven. What are the riches of heaven? Well, him. him. What, what riches are the riches of earth? Well, it's called common. Common in heaven. You see, Revelation chapter I believe 21 begins to talk about heaven. The walls are made out of the things that you buy and put on a necklace. The gates are made out of sapphires and emeralds, which you pay money and get in debt to so that you can buy. And the streets are paved in gold. So what you give your life for here, heaven's paving streets and building walls with there. 
quick hypothesis. So we can live for what's common in heaven, given our life for it here, or we can live for what's the greater treasure of heaven that's been offered to us here, knowing that what we could give our life for is a chasing after the wind if it's all about gold and emeralds and rubies and stones. Are you tracking with me? So how do you check greed? Well, you start with Christ's example. Jesus gave up the riches of heaven to give us who were poor the riches of heaven. Christ's example is the motivator for all giving. Why do I give to my church? Because Jesus gave all. Why do I give to my neighbor? Because Jesus gave all. Why do I give to my spouse? Because Jesus gave all. Why do I give to my kids? Because Jesus gave all. It's not about me feeling better about myself. It's not about me looking a certain way to other people. I give because Jesus gave first. It's my motivation. And then we can get past when Jesus is the motivation, this like boundary kind of giving, like I give this much, but no more. I set aside this, but nothing. No, it's all his. And so since he gave all, it's now my joy, not out of duty, but in worship to say, God, you can have it all. Seem like you don't mean that. No, I mean it. I daggum mean it. I'm so sick of, of greed robbing you of your full potential in Jesus. I'm so, I don't want this to keep me from experiencing God's kingdom on earth. I hate the idea that stuff could become a Lord over us and then keep us from the lordship and the power and the kingdom impact that God has for us. I hate it. So, so, so let me give you a little story. Not because I want you to think I'm a superhero. I'm not. I'm scared and I'm a coward and I'm as greedy as anybody can be. I never will forget, we moved across country and we planted a church in California. When we were moving, we gave away our car because we felt like the Lord wanted us to be generous on our way out the door. We gave away our table and our furniture. We, we literally moved out there with no couch, uh, a car that we towed behind and almost lost in Houston, Texas when my friend hit a hotel with a U-Haul. It was crazy. Which, by the way, ate into the bank account that was supposed to give us a savings account. And I remember in the first year of that church, we were, I was reading the story of the rich young ruler. And I felt the Lord ask me, would I still ask people to give up everything and come after me? And I overconfidently answered, of course, Lord, and we've done that. You ever been there? Of course, that's us, Lord. We're, we're the good guys. Like, we're not like the rest of the Christians who, like, you know, are greedy. We, we are open-handed towards you. And I felt the Lord give me one of those pump the brakes, oh, really moments. See, I, I had done two things preemptively that would be smart. They're not bad things. They just become gods to me. I had three lifelines that, other than God that I was living on. I had been told by a guy named Dave that if you save $10,000 in a 401k, you could be a millionaire by the time you're retired if you had 40 years to compound an interest. So I put 10k away thinking that was going to be good. Not a bad thing. We had saved up $7,000 in our savings account because we knew California was going to be expensive. I mean, it's expensive now. Uh, it was expensive then. And then I had a father who had done really well for himself financially. I knew I could always turn to him. So I felt the Lord say to me, uniquely, this is not for all of you. Some of you are like, is this what? I don't know. This was a unique moment for me. So I'm not saying this is a, everybody should do this. 
I just know this is what God was asking of us. These three lines were the lines of trust that we had in our life other than God. And I felt the Lord say to me, I want you to give me all of it. And I did what every one of you would do if the Lord asked you to give everything. I tried to come up with excuses to explain how it was a demon and not the Holy Spirit. It's so funny. People come around me and they're like, I, I just keep feeling like I'm supposed to forgive them, but I feel like that may be demonic. No, that's not demonic. That's the Lord. I feel like we're supposed to reconcile, but I feel like that may be demonic. No, that's not demonic. That's the Lord. It's hard, but it's the Lord. So I did what all of us would do. I said, well, Lord, if you want me to give that, it's going to come out of my wife's uh, mouth because we're co-own this bank account and she ain't going to like it all disappearing. So if you want us to give it, she needs to come home from her work and tell me it's time to give it. Closed my Bible and thought, enough of that. My wife comes home from work and I immediately had a fear in my heart because I knew God was all over it. She looked at me and she said, what are you doing? I said, what do you think I'm doing? I don't know. Is this mystery hour? Am I Carmen San Diego? Like, am I, I, what do you think I'm doing? She said, uh, I think the Lord's telling us we got to give some money to the church. I'm like, it's not, not joking. It's really happening. I'm like, how much? She said, all of it. I broke down and started crying. She said, go get the checkbook. Either he can have it all or he has none of it. That's all I'm at. It's all I want for you as your pastor. I want the kind of church that says, you can have it all, Lord. Give us a house today, take it away tomorrow. You can have it all. Give us a savings account today, take it away tomorrow. You can have it all, Lord. Give us a retirement today and tell us we got to go back to work because it's not going to work out tomorrow. You can have it all, Lord. You're essential. None of these other things are essential. They're good gifts, but I'm never going to put the gift in the seat of the God that gave the gift to me. I want that for you. I want it for us. So if you, if you scan my sermon notes, there's a five-question greed check. I would encourage you to do it. You can scan the QR code, get my notes, make sure I was reading everything in context with the Bible that I just threw at you today. It's a good idea. And then let the Holy Spirit do some work and figure out if you're greedy or not. It'll kill your momentum. It'll take away your peace. It'll keep you from the path to making the impact that I think your soul longs to make. You just don't know what it looks like. Our altar's here. You ready for the weirdest altar call of the year? If you're greedy, repent. Repent. Not in humiliation because His grace is sufficient for the greedy. Maybe a step two as the altar is open for people to come and pray and repent. I'm, I'm serious. Like, bended knees. That's normal here. Y'all may not have experienced it as normal here, but I'm telling you, it's normal here. We, we repent at Four Points Church. But secondly, who, who's going to be that accountability partner for greed in your life? Who's the person you let in that says, hey, hey, 6%, that's greedy. I get we got accountability for a lot of other stuff in our life, but maybe the root is greed. And until we deal with greed, you can medicate whatever's on the branch all you want. It's just going to keep coming out because greed's at the heart of it. It can look different every time, but greed's at the heart of it. So let's eradicate the root. 
Let's get accountability around it. Let's become generous. Let's be the people of God he's called us to be. Let's be open-handed towards God and towards our neighbors so that we can see the great commandment fulfilled. In Jesus' name, our prayer team's here. You move us the Lord leads. In Jesus' name.